This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. All children are smart in their own way. Some children, however, have individual learning styles that don't allow them to succeed with traditional learning methods. These kids are not disabled. They're quite capable of learning everything their peers learn. They just learn in a different way. But children with learning differences are often robbed of their confidence and joy. It can be tremendously difficult for parents to accept that their child may have a learning challenge that interferes with the child's success and potential. The possibility can leave parents feeling helpless and isolated. Yet because parents know their child best, it's critically important that they recognize any learning differences and seek help. Early intervention can have a significant impact on a child's success in school and in life. Addressed early, problems associated with learning differences can be minimized and success maximized. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about successful strategies to be used with kids with learning differences. And to help us with all of that is an internationally recognized speaker and coach who's also the co-author of a brand new book on exactly that, about working with kids, identifying their special individual learning styles, and then giving them the tools that they need to thrive. I'm Armin Brat, and it all starts right after this. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Elaine Fogel Schneider, who is the co author of Confidence and Joy Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me today. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Will you de- define for us what a learning difference is? Is that what people have heretofore been calling a learning dif- uh, difficulty or a learning disability? Is Are you just using a different word, or is there something actual different about it? Well, actually, uh, looking at children a little bit differently from what might be the customary use of the word learning disability. Okay. These are the kids that um, have more of a difference than a disability. In other words, they may learn differently than other children that are in their class. We're looking at children that um, may be auditory learners or kinesthetic learners or visual learners, but they're learning in a way that's different from their other classmates something that gives them a little bit more difficulty remembering topics, spelling, or reading. And many times parents may think that this is a disability, um, and they may search for ways of helping them in the classroom. But for many of the children, they find that it's really just a difference. And because of that difference, they're having difficulty with 
school, and it's affecting their self-esteem and affecting the way that they learn. And are, are these things you think that are reasonably accommodated? Well, sometimes they are, very much so in, in different varieties of settings. You know, so many children go to different schools. Um, some children are homeschooled. So it depends on where the child is going in the district and if they're able to accommodate their needs. There are certain things called the 504, which is uh, across the nation, which is for those kids that are learning differently to give them a little bit of help in the classroom setting. Uh, Things like being able to take a test and getting extra time for it or having somebody take their notes for them if they're having difficulty keeping up with the teacher as they speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are a variety of different things we can do for these children. And sometimes we find that they may not have accommodations in the classroom, but they may need tutors or people that can assist them with their learning needs to figure out what is their way of learning and then make a plan for them. Now, for for parents who have a child like this, and they're probably going to know it, is this the kind of thing that can be assessed in the way that dyslexia or something like that, a more traditional learning disability can be assessed? Because I'm I'm just imagining that some school districts may not be set up for something that could be, that isn't quite so easily definable. And you know, that happens a lot. We see that many times children may be keeping it together in the classroom, and the teacher may not be aware that the child is having that great of a difficulty. And when they get home, that's when you see the meltdown, trying to do the homework, having homework struggles, or having a child that comes home and says, I'm stupid, or I'm not like my other, you know, the other kids in the class. And you get to see that they have that difficulty when they're in the home environment, and sometimes the teacher doesn't see that in the classroom. So we see that, you know, parents need to go to bat for their child if they themselves notice any of these difficulties because really the parent knows their child the best. And a lot of times these signs can be shown um, visible to a parent that may not be visible to the classroom teacher. But oftentimes we see this happening when the child starts even in first grade. Mm -hmm. Now we have spelling, now we have math, now we have reading. And they become more difficult than they were when they were just in, say, a preschool setting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, just for the purposes of of getting some of the services that a child might need covered. I mean, a lot of public schools are required to do an education plan uh, or an evaluation for kids with learning disabilities. Uh, you know, again, dyslexia or or something like that. Um, but this would be possibly harder to get some benefits for? Well, it's true. Um, There are, you know, there are many different categories for getting a child to have what we call the IEP, the Individualized Educational Program. Um, And many times children that have a learning difference may go under the radar because many of these children are very smart and very bright and they don't have any cognitive difficulty. They may just have a difficulty of paying attention or listening to what their teacher is saying. And they may not have um, 
a difficulty that gets to the level of special education. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I mean, not, not to be picking at you, but just from the perspective of a teacher with classroom sizes are constantly on the increase, and it seems like a teacher would be saying, I just can't deal with any more of these these individual things. I mean, we have to, we have 30 kids in the class, and now I've got this one who needs to run around while I'm giving a lesson, and this one who needs to have me write it on the board. And how much can can you expect teachers to accommodate this, and how much is going to have to be done uh, additional work. I mean, you said tutors before, but ad- additional work that parents or other people are going to have to work with the child outside of classroom hours. Well, it's a really great question because you are so right about the size of classes these days and the distinctions that teachers have to make if they are to then address every different need of every different child in the class. So it does become a balancing act where parents need to talk to the teacher and find out if they're noticing any difficulties in the classroom, where parents might have to say, um, my child comes home from school and is so frustrated by the homework, and is there something that we might be able to do that can help my child? To make it in such a way that the teacher isn't overwhelmed by the needs of the child, but is in a way a partner to the parent. And so perhaps give my, can you, you know, is there a way you might give my child some extra time so he can finish his assignment in the classroom? Or maybe instead of giving the child 20 spelling words to study, maybe we can give him 10. Would that be okay? Um, So finding different ways of maneuvering and so the child doesn't feel that they become a failure that they can't do what their other classmates are doing. But in essence, they can do it. They may just do it at a slower pace, Mm -hmm. or they may just need a little extra time to get something done in the classroom. One of the things I really don't like seeing, and I've heard so often this from parents that I work with, is that their child is taking longer to get the assignment done in the class than their classmates, and so the teacher keeps them in from recess. And here all of his friends or her friends are going out to play, releasing any stress they've had for the whole day. And the child who is struggling in the classroom now gets to do more work in the classroom. And that's really unfair to the child. It really does affect his own confidence. Uh, He doesn't think he's good enough. He doesn't think he's like his, his peers because now he has to stay in while they can go out and play. So it's really important for parents to work with their teacher, have a collaborative partnership, not adversarial, but really talking to them about what are some things they can do that wouldn't take up so much time that the teacher has for their daily activities, but be a way that can help contribute to the child's confidence and success. But this is all based on having some sort of an idea of what it is and giving the teacher some concrete insight because the teachers may not I mean they may just say look this kid isn't getting the work done and I don't know why but they're just not coming in on time and uh, so you're gonna have to do that do something with that mom and dad yes and I think that's what you're saying is really a very big part of this is that you need to be teaching parents 
to be able to advocate for advocate for their children. Um, parents need to discover what is their learning style. They may need to have an evaluation by a professional, um, and in doing so, they can decide, design a plan for their child. Now, again, it may not come to the level of special education. There are many children that I see that are in the classroom, and the teachers just don't know what to do with them because they're not, they seem that they're not paying attention, Mm -hmm. they're wandering, um, they may have some behavioral issues, which they can't sit on their chair like the other children. So it's very important to get the child some type of evaluation, uh, get others that know about learning differences to help so you can understand what you need for your child, and then the parent can help the teacher understand what the child needs in the classroom. Talking with Elaine Fogel Schneider, who's the co-author with Deborah Ross Swain of Confidence and Joy: Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Elaine. Nine one one, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? Nine one one, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. Nine one one, what is your emergency? Nine one one, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Elaine Fogel Schneider, the co-author of Confidence and Joy, Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. And we were talking about the, the importance of working with the teacher and uh, having, a, having an idea. So what do you suggest for parents who are in a, a similar situation to what I just described about a teacher, that the parents don't know exactly what's going on. They just, they get report cards and the report cards say your son or your daughter isn't trying hard enough or isn't getting the homework in or doesn't seem to be focused. Uh, And the parents, both of them work and they're busy and they just don't know what to do. How do you suggest that they at least try to get a, to do an initial assessment themselves to figure out whether they need to bring in some help? Well, I think if they if they're in that situation where they see that their child is struggling, that there's anxiety, this can be the kid that every Monday morning they have a stomach ache, uh, they don't want to get out of bed, or you drive them up to the school to get out, and this is a child that won't leave the car. Um, there are different signs that parents can can see that will alert them to there is a problem here with my child. You know, that they're doing their best, but something isn't right. And so many times what, you know, I like to do is talk about the bright, the bright way, you know, how to go about this the bright way, how to build confidence and joy in your child by understanding what, their, what gives them joy, what gives them confidence. You need to recognize that your child has something different with them, and it's okay if they do. Because every child has natural talents, every child has gifts. They may just not have the talent right now in the academic world, in the spelling, in the reading, or in the math. 
And they may have other talents that you want to celebrate. They may be great basketball players, or they may be great at, 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 other, at music. Um, but you need to identify some key educators or professionals that can help your child. And we have to find those people that may be able to then um, evaluate your child and see what they come up with, people that are trained in this, and find out where is the difficulty for your child, which is the way that they learn best. Once you've discovered the way they learn best, then we can put together some type of program that can help them. And that's what we're all here for. We're here to have successful children, children that, you know, can move on from one grade to the next into life, happy and and successful. And when you find, or do you find, that when these needs are are correctly diagnosed and and dealt with, that kids can thrive and they can overcome the feelings of inadequacy or not being good enough? Absolutely. When children have that skill instilled in them, that ability that they can learn, and all children can learn. They just need to find which learning style works best for them. And when they have that, they can thrive. You know, it's like vitamin S, the success vitamin. What's going to be the equation that we need here so our child can be successful? But every child has that ability to learn. You just have to unlock that little door and find out which way is best for them. I'm imagining that for some kids... There's gonna, there could be an aha moment on behalf of the parents. They can say, oh, you know what? I always knew that you know, this is somebody who just needs to be running around a lot. And ever since we started doing our, our lessons in the car or talking about things while, while out playing a game or something, that, that he or she seems to be learning better. There may be some things, what I'm saying is that, that the parents can, can diagnose on their own and figure out what works best. But who do they go to? What type of a person are we talking about who would be a more professional diagnostician? Well, if there is there in the school system, if they want to start there, um, you know, they would ask to have an assessment. We have school psychologists that are able to assess children. There are speech and language pathologists that can look at their speech and language and their learning styles. Um, there are physical therapists, occupational therapists. So a lot of different people, uh, professional uh, skills are within a school district if your child is in a school district. Um, you may want to go to an outside agency. Maybe you don't want to use the school district. And in that case, you know, there are, again, individuals who test for academics. There are speech and language pathologists who are outside of the school district and other professionals. Um, and so that's where you would want to start with people that are looking at the way your child's learning, whether it's speech or language or listening skills, whether it's their own ability to attend, whether it's their own ability to, um, if they have any sensory issues that are interfering with their learning. You know, sometimes a child can't sit still on a chair. Think about it. You know, in a regular classroom, you're expecting the children to sit on a chair at a table and do their work. Well, there are so many children that for them, they need something that helps them keep that balance and keeps them alert. And I've had lots of children that they'll sit on a big round ball um, because that's what makes the best 
sense for their body or children that have a balance, some type of balancing issue. And so we want to make them comfortable so that they can even sit and learn. So there's, again, those assessments are vital in determining what areas of need does your child have. How do you deal with other kids and the fact that kids are sometimes not always kind to each other and they tend to look for the the one thing that makes a kid different, whether it's glasses or a, a physical, a, a limp or, you know, a different kind of haircut even or over being overweight or underweight. I mean, kids are, are looking for some little thing. And if you have a kid who needs to sit on a ball or who stays afterwards and needs a little extra time to finish tests. Is there a way of working that the parents can somehow work with the teacher or work with the school to talk to the other kids in the class about differences? So it's not only just that you want to work with your own child to let him or her know that, that it's okay to be different, but other kids too. That's really a great point um, because what we see is that it's so important to teach others about learning differences and what teachers can do in the classroom is to explain about a learning difference because these children who have the differences, they are really bright and talented. They just have a different way of learning. And so we want to empower the children who have the learning differences to feel good about themselves. And by sharing this information with children, bringing it to whatever level the children are, if they're first graders or fourth graders or, you know, middle schoolers, it's just a matter of doing a little bit of teaching about differences and how important each one of us are. I know we have, um, like, it's called the bright way when we have children with learning differences uh, B for building confidence and joy, or for recognizing that your child may have a learning difference and really as a parent be okay with it. And I identify the key educators and professionals in your child's life and they can build on your child's success, both emotional and academic. G, get your child involved in activities that allow them to experience new learning and successes. H is for honoring and sharing your child's natural gifts and talents so that others can appreciate their value. And T is teaching others about learning differences, what they are and what they're not, and helping them to understand that these kids are bright and talented. They just have a different way of learning. That is fascinating. And can you give us one story of a child that you've worked with and and how the work that you've done in this area has changed his or her life? Oh, sure I can. There's one little person that was having difficulty. Well, at preschool, everything was fine and and everything was great, looking forward to school. But once they got into kindergarten and first grade, that's where it started. And every day the child would go to the class, to the school. The mom would, you know, take them to school And the little girl would just not get out of the car. She just would not go. It was a battle every day. And the mom was just at her wit's end. And she spoke to the classroom teacher and said, you know, every time I take Crystal to school, she just won't get out of the car. I mean, she's anxious. She has anxiety that she's not going to do well, that she can't do the work. You know, is there something we can do to help her? 
And the teacher thought and thought and thought, and she realized that there needed to be something to give to Crystal that would give her a responsibility because she was feeling anxiety about her skills. Although she did well once she got into school, but just getting her in there was was too much for her. The anxiety was just too much. And so the teacher decided that her little daughter, who went to kindergarten in the same school, it would be a perfect match for Crystal to be the person responsible for taking her daughter to the kindergarten classroom. And what that meant is that every day, Crystal would have to get to school on time, that Crystal would have to Mm. get her daughter to the kindergarten. And that way, now Crystal found herself a a very important part of being responsible and worthy and important enough that her teacher would give her that responsibility. Mm. So with that responsibility, she now no longer needed to give her mother the aggravation of not getting out of the car. She had a reason to get out she of the car. Job. She had a job, yeah. And she okay. had her job. And then her her school, her schooling improved. Her skills improved. Her spelling improved. Everything improved mm. because she now felt good about herself. She had Wonderful. a purpose. Elaine Fogel-Schneider is the author, co-author with Deborah Ross Swain of Confidence and Joy, Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my two-year-old son has discovered his genitals and spends what seems like an awful lot of time playing with himself. How can I get him to stop? The toddler years are the age of exploration, a time when your child investigates his world and learns about all the great things he can do with his body. Giving him as much freedom as possible to explore is critical to his developing sense of autonomy and self-confidence. Like it or not, almost all toddlers go through a genital self-exploration phase, and it's especially common right about the time when they start making the transition from diapers to big kid underwear. After all, when they were wearing diapers all the time, their genitals were pretty hard to grab a hold of. But now that they're accessible nearly all the time, it kind of reminds me a little of that George Carlin quip, why do dogs lick their crotches? Because they can. Still, it's a little discomforting to watch a child play with his or her own genitals, and it's hard to resist pulling the child's hand away or snapping, stop that! Maybe it's all those stories we heard about how masturbation causes blindness or turns kids into perverts. Whatever your reason, try to resist the urge to step between your child and his genitals. Making a big deal out of it can give him the message that that part of his body is dirty or that touching it is somehow wrong. For a little boy, his penis is no more interesting than any other part of him, says pediatrician Fitzhugh Dotson. It's only when we react as though there's something bad or naughty about it that we teach him to become morbidly interested. The same obviously goes for little girls. The truth, of course, is that our toddlers will only develop sex hang-ups if we teach them to, says Dodson. At home, the best plan of action is to neither encourage nor discourage genital exploration. In public places, however, gently redirect your child to another activity, telling him that private touching should be done in a private place, such as his own room in his own home. In addition, 
teach the correct names for human body parts, including penis, vagina, and rectum, just as you did for belly button, nose, and elbow. Being able to name something makes it a lot less mysterious. Explain physical differences between adults and children. Adults' pubic hair, as well as the hair on their chest, under the arms, and elsewhere, and adult-sized genitals are of special concern to kids. The simple message for kids this age is that as you get bigger, everything gets bigger, and that when you get to be a grown-up, you get hairier. Talk about touching. It's simply not okay for anyone, adult or child, to touch a child in his or her private area, except if the adult is a doctor or a parent bathing a child or changing a diaper. Bathroom privacy, closing the door, knocking, that kind of thing, is also a good topic to bring up now. Empower your child. Tell him that if someone other than his parents or a doctor touches his private areas, he should tell you right away. Stay away from intimate touching or sex in front of your child. But be warned, your child will likely walk in on you one day, and scrambling around trying to cover up may make your child think that there's something wrong with your, and by extension, his, body. Instead, calmly put some clothes on and walk your child back to his room. Depending on what the child sees, you can talk about how adults may touch each other in certain ways. Don't punish or chastise your child for his behavior or for touching himself or others. Simply redirect him to another activity. Later on, have another conversation about appropriate places for that type of behavior and about the rule that it's not okay to touch anyone else. Curiosity about sex and self-exploration are normal, plus it feels good. So is playing doctor and wanting to examine other children's body parts or show them theirs. That type of behavior may seem sexual to you, but in most cases children see it as just play. However, if your child is obsessed with touching himself or others, you may want to speak to his pediatrician about whether it's a behavioral problem or a sign of sexual abuse. If you've got a comment or question for us, you can certainly send it to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through our website at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the mrdad.com radio network. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba. Please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello there and welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com, and thanks so much for staying with us. Though anxiety has risen among teens and young adults overall, studies are showing that it has skyrocketed in girls. 
Researchers finding that the number of girls who said that they often felt nervous, worried, or fearful jumped 55% from 2009 to 2014, while the comparable number for adolescent boys has remained unchanged. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with girls, and she's witnessed the rising tide of stress and anxiety in her own research, in private practice, and in the all-girls school where she consults. Our guest is going to talk to us about the surprising and underappreciated value of stress and anxiety, that it can actually help stretch us beyond our comfort zones and keep us safe. At the same time, she understands that no parent wants their daughter to suffer from emotional overload. And so she's going to be talking to us also about places where stress and tension takes hold in girls' lives, their interactions at home, pressures at school, social anxiety when they're among other girls and among boys, and especially when they're on social media. I'm Armin Brock. We'll start talking about the epidemic of stress and anxiety in girls when positive parenting continues right after this. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I... When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, Guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear... Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Lisa Damour, who's the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you you talk in the book about how anxiety and stress has skyrocketed among girls but has stayed the same among boys. And I'm just curious. I mean, the, the, a lot of things about self-esteem We've heard about girls' self-esteem plummeting during adolescence and boys staying the same or being high. And some studies that look at that a little bit more carefully find that basically boys are just lying about it. And that they, they and I would imagine that there's something about that also, about boys not acknowledging stress or anxiety. Do you think that that's partly what's going on? Great question. And this is one of those things that when you pull this thread, there's a lot sort of you know, wrapped up in there. So in some studies, we see girls reporting these big leaps um, over a five-year period and feeling really nervous and fearful and worried, and boys reporting no change. In other studies, we do see that anxiety and stress are creeping up for boys and girls, but creeping up at a faster rate for girls than for boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has always been the case that diagnostically, girls are much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety than boys. Um, the rates have always sort of hovered around two to one, though they may be shifting even more, unfortunately, in the girls' favor. You know, not that anyone's winning in this. No. But um, one way we can construe this big gap, and this gets to your question about, well, what is going on for the boys, is that it's one of the kind of um, cardinal rules in my field of psychology that when girls are distressed, they're more likely to collapse in on themselves, to look depressed or anxious 
and that when boys are distressed, they're more likely to act out, to get themselves in trouble, um, to be angry. So there's no question that boys suffer like girls suffer. Um, probably different causes, different routes, different reasons. What we're interested in some ways in my field is, you know, what's the expression of that suffering? And and so as stress goes up, I think for kids in general, we are seeing more anxiety in girls. I think we're seeing a tick up in boys. We may see other ways in which boys are letting us know that they're distressed. What are girls anxious about? Is there is there anything that I mean, you you must have put together a list of of the top three or four things? What what are the things that are concerning them so much that that is leading to this? So when we try to think about what are the things that are uniquely stressful for girls, right? There's so much that we can point to that stresses everyone, but what are the girls themselves up against? <clears throat> so one of the things I tried to do in my book was to go layer by layer through girls' lives. You know what happens for them with other girls? What happens for them in you know their relationships with guys? Uh, the dynamics at school, the dynamics in the culture. So here are some of the big takeaways. Girls worry more about school than boys. They work harder at school than boys, and they feel more stressed by it, even when they're doing better academically as a group than boys are. We also know that a lot has been added to girls' plates, largely for the better. You know, girls have now so many opportunities and every option available to them, but we haven't taken things off their plate at the same time. So one thing I'm really mindful of is girls as a group are very, very serious about school, but they still spend a huge amount of time worrying about whether or not they look okay, whether they're cute enough or hot enough, you know, as they would say. Um, I think it's true in broad strokes that when boys are very, very serious about school, as many are, they may not be as much, you know, kind of dogged by worries that they don't look the way they're supposed to look at the same time. So those are some of the forces that I think may uniquely bear down on girls. You know, this is something, I've got three three daughters, and uh-huh. we talk about these things every once in a while. And I've had it told to me from a number of people, not only my daughters, but a number of women, that that women and girls, when they're concerned about how they look, they're often more concerned about how they look, not so much in other people's eyes. I mean, not, not so much in boys' eyes, which I think is something that, that we talk about a lot, is that there's a lot of pressure put on, on women and girls from men and boys, but they're, it's the, the pressures that are coming from other girls. Do you talk about that? Um, I talk about competition among girls, right, which is an incredibly fraught topic. Uh, girls are ambitious. They are striving. They are trying to do incredible things, and yet... We haven't given them a lot of guidance about how to navigate that when they're competing against classmates or even good friends. And I think one sort of zone of competition that comes up a lot is appearance and body and fitness and weight. And it gets exacerbated by social media, where there's a huge amount of energy sometimes that girls are putting in with um, doing really what amount to photo shoots where they, you know, put on their makeup and they pose themselves just so and they put on this cute little outfit or a bikini and then they take, you know, hundreds of images and then post one with often sort of with the suggestion that it was sort of spontaneously taken. And so so <laughs> yeah. what we're seeing, right, is that, you know, for our generation, I'm a parent of teenagers too, for our generation we may have sort of, you know, measured ourselves against the models we saw in magazines. Now we're raising a generation of young women who are 
comparing themselves to the girl who sits next to them in math, you know, and this girl who has, at the same time, created a really crafted media image, but it doesn't feel as far away, maybe, as like Elle McPherson did when I was growing up, you know. So we have to help girls with it. And one of the metaphors I suggest in Under Pressure, my new book, is that we remind young people and ourselves, I think, too, that what we're seeing online and what people choose to present online is sort of like a furniture showroom, and it cannot be compared to a lived-in home. You know, the lived-in home is what we know about our own lives and how messy and imperfect and real they are. Most, most of what gets put up on social media, especially by younger adolescents, is the furniture showroom, the crafted, the curated, the carefully presented. And so we're always having, I think, to step in and say, look, you know, I, I've met that girl. She's she's adorable, but, like, she doesn't look like that. Or tell me about her. Like, I see that she, you know, looks really cute here and is working hard at it. How come? What's that for? Who is that for? You know, I, I look at the news feeds that I get. I get a, a number of them, and I, I have to shut off the entertainment news because I find it so annoying just generally. But also, I just I, I look at it and I think, all of these articles from relatively mainstream publications, but also from women's magazines about, oh, Meghan Markle wore these shoes, and now you can have them too, and or somebody, you know, Kim Kardashian did this, and you should too. Just it seems like so much pressure is put on to girls to not only look like the the one who's sitting next to them in math class, but also to replicate somehow the even more crafted images that are put out there by by celebrities i mean and and poor megan markle the the poor thing is just constantly under the media microscope and it just seems so horrible for her to have to deal with that and and so so many of these other people but she seems like a nicer person than the kardashians (laughs) certainly someone of more substance we might imagine yeah um well so i said like absolutely and i think that you're talking about at least two problems so one problem is that there's a market here, right? I mean, it's one of those things like follow the money. You know, someone's making money off of selling young women on this idea that they should own the same items as these high status or at least high, um, you know, high profile people. And, you know, I, I've become increasingly conscious of, you know, if someone's making money off of it, our kids are probably going to suffer as a function of it. So there's money to be made. The other thing that makes me really bananas is the extraordinarily disproportionate emphasis on outward appearance. When we are talking about Meghan Markle, we are talking, like you say, about her shoes, about her hair, about the cut of her dress. She's a talented person. She's a skilled actress who made it in an industry that's very, very hard to make it in. We don't talk about that nearly so much as we talk about her latest mascara. And I really worry about that approach to talking about women, that we tend to talk about the outsides so much more than we talk about what goes on inside for them. Yeah. And I think, but the the, the harder part for me is as a guy and as a father of daughters is that this is coming from other women, that they're, they're telling other women that these, these messages that seem to be just nothing short of harmful. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think we have to accept, and I'm sure you've accepted as a parent and I have, that we can't prevent our daughters from being exposed to media that we really disagree with. I think what we can do is, without 
beating it to death in a way that makes us too annoying, we can take every opportunity to say exactly what you just said. Say, oh, man, I hate seeing this preoccupation with Meghan Markle's shoes. There's so much more to her as a person. There's so much more to any woman in her shoes, and yet it seems like that's all we talk about. Yeah, yeah. Talking with Lisa Damore, who's the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Lisa. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Lisa Damore, the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. So we've talked a little bit about some of the, the things that girls are anxious and stressed about and the damage that that's doing to them. We'll talk a little bit about the benefits of stress. We'll take a, take a break from the downer stuff. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So the entire first chapter of my book is about the academic and clinical understanding of stress and anxiety. So I've been a practicing psychologist for 25 years. And part of why I felt I had to write this book is that our understanding, our professional understanding of stress and anxiety is really quite divorced from the cultural understanding. So the culture right now tends to see all anxiety and all stress as harmful. Whereas psychologists, have long believed and continue to believe that stress and anxiety are normal and healthy functions. They're basically going to happen if you get out of bed. You're going to have one or the the other or probably both multiple times in the course of a day. Stress is what happens when we operate at the edge of our capacities. Anytime we take on something new and challenging, we will feel stressed. And it can be a good thing. It can be having a baby come into our house, right? That's a wildly stressful experience the first time you have a new baby. Um, getting married, getting a new job. Uh, it also can happen under difficult conditions, you know, when um, a close friend is really ill or when um, we have to move against our wishes or something like that. What we know as psychologists is that stress has what we call an inoculating function, that if you have a stressful experience and weather it, you actually come out of it tougher and more durable and flexible. Right? So if you think about if you have two babies, you know, the second time you have a child come into your home, it's not nearly so overwhelming, even though you know, now have twice the kids. So the way we want to think about this, and then really importantly talk about it with our children, is to not talk about stress as something that has to be gotten rid of or avoided. But for the most part, and there are some exceptions, we want to talk about stress as a normal and acceptable and actually growth-giving part of life. Okay, and, and how does that work? How do you do that? So, so say that your 10th grade daughter is saying, oh my gosh, chemistry is so hard. You know, chemistry is absolutely brutal, which it is. You know, chemistry is a big shift from everything that's come before. And she says, I'm so stressed by it, I'm so stressed by it. Then we can say, yeah, of course you are. This is brand new. Um, you have to adapt a ton to get good at this. Here's the good news. The more you work at this, the easier it will get. A great analogy for school especially is to talk about intellectual growth in the same way we talk about weightlifting or muscle building, that in order to gain intellectual strength, 
you have to do workouts on material that is hard, just as in order to gain muscular strength, you have to work out on you know, weights that are unpleasantly heavy to lift. And if we can talk about that as expectable, typical, part of what we've signed up for, it can take some of the discomfort out of it. I worry that right now, when we talk about stress as all bad, we're actually creating a condition where we have young people who become stressed about even being stressed, mm-hmm. as opposed to becoming stressed and then thinking, all right, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm getting growth and strength as a function of this. Besides just telling them that it's a normal thing, are there some skills or some techniques or strategies that people can use to get over some of this stuff? And I, I don't mean get over it in a harsh way, but I mean, what you're saying a little bit differently is it just stop. It's yeah. it's not that bad. It's not that bad or it's supposed to be this way. You know, school is supposed to be stressful. I, I, that's one of the titles of one of the sections in my book, you know, that this is what we are, in fact, asking of our children. But yes, there are definitely things we can do. So one thing we can do is to pivot our attention away from, oh my gosh, this is so stressful, to how is this student or how is this person going through a difficult thing going to recover? You know, what is coping going to look like? And again, you can really do a lot with that muscle building analogy. You know, you cannot lift weights all the time. A huge part of growing muscle is to work out, rest and recover, and then go back to working out. So what I love to think with young people about is how they themselves like to recover. And it's really fun because most young people have their favorite way to cope or to relax, and it can be very idiosyncratic. You know, so there's some things like some kids are like, oh, I love to go for a run, or I like to watch you know, reruns of Grey's Anatomy, or I like to cuddle with a dog. Um, I've also had young people say things like, I love this. I had a girl to me, say to me that um, she loved when she was really, really stressed to rip up a piece of paper into a lot of little pieces and then tape it together like a puzzle. <laughs> it just, I was so you know, so funny and unique, but it worked for her. So when we're talking with young people who feel very, very stressed, we can validate that that it's stressful. We can say, yep, that's actually normal and expectable, and you're going to get something out of this. And then we can say, what's a good way for you to try to catch your breath a little bit? Do you want to, you know, go for a run? Do you want to watch this movie that you love? Do you want to, you know, whatever it is that your child likes, And what I always tell young people is that the good news is that brains recover a lot faster than muscles, that for most students, they can have a very long, challenging day at school. And if they can come home and have a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes to an hour of real downtime where they just um, relax, recover, do the thing that works for them, they can usually get right back to working out. You're talking about mentally. Mentally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> get, get back okay. to, a, to an intellectual workout. Okay, but the other thing, sure. yeah, no, I'm glad you clarified that. The other thing, though, I think that we want to get comfortable with is that stress is unpleasant and uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's bad. That's, I think, sometimes where parents and kids can get stuck. And this is also true of anxiety, that it's unpleasant and uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's bad. And, um, and I, again, just to really beat this exercise metaphor to death, exercise can be quite uncomfortable, but we know it's good for you. And same with stress and anxiety, because anxiety, to go down that path for a minute, actually keeps us safe. That anxiety is our internal alarm system that alerts us to a threat. And so when we're anxious, 
usually we want to pay attention to it. You know, maybe we're at a party we shouldn't be at. If we're a teenager, it's just too crazy a party and we need to get out of there. Or we're anxious because we have a big test and we haven't started to study. You know, we want young people to pay attention to their anxiety and not feel like something's wrong all the time if they feel anxious. You know, and just to go back for the last time to the the connection or at least the metaphor of exercise and, and stress that one can be used to help the other. I mean, exercise can certainly, has been shown over and over again, to be a stress reduction thing. So that is a way that some people may be able to at least take the edge off of some initial stress. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, this always comes up. Parents will often ask me about kids being overscheduled. And there are kids who are overscheduled. But it's very individual. And it is sometimes the case that um, for some students, that sports work really well for them as a way to release some of the stress from the school day and then feel refreshed as they head back into their homework for the evening. So even if on paper their schedule looks really, really jammed, that doesn't mean actually that it isn't creating a pretty good balance between one kind of demand and then another kind of demand that allows them to reset. We only have just a minute left. I want to go back a little bit to the, the more downer type of stress. But what do, you, what do you suggest that people do about the mean girls syndrome, such as, such as it is? Well, so it is true that girls can be mean, um, though I have to say as an advocate for girls and young women, when we look at the data, um, boys are quite a bit more aggressive, both physically, uh, much more aggressive physically than girls, and it turns out by several studies, equally aggressive relationally. So girls are not meaner than boys. Uh, they do have a reputation, though, for that. The truth is that we do need to help young people learn how to have healthy conflicts. And a lot of the mean girl behavior or mean boy behavior we see is unhealthy conflict. And grown-ups are not great at dealing with conflict, so we're not necessarily good at teaching kids how to have healthy conflicts. So I have a whole long section in my chapter titled Girls Among Girls, about what healthy conflict looks like and how to teach kids all about it so that if they are going to engage in conflict, they do it in ways that may work well, may serve them in the long run, and also may help bring the drama down as opposed to continuing to fuel it. So there's more we can do, but we haven't, we haven't really done our part, I think, as grown-ups to help young people have effective strategies for managing disagreements, which will arise of course, in the course of being with a whole bunch of kids all day, every day for nine months. Lisa Demour is the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, thanks so much. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.